Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and french fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. The old question in science is how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show. If you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or go to askbillnye.com on the electric internet. You can also check me out on all the social media out there and to find out about our upcoming guests. But today, I am joined once again by science writer, editor, and dear friend, seriously, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Greetings, Bill. As always, a pleasure to be here with you. A pleasure to have a, a chance to sit back and think about things. You know, here we are, we're in the midst of this COVID pandemic, which has been going on for quite a while. And people talk a lot about, you know, all these people are not wearing masks and all this resistance. But to me, one of the most striking things is how compliant people have been, how cooperative people have been. I'm walking around my neighborhood and I'd say like, a good, you know, like at least 90% of the people are being very responsible in distancing, wearing masks. You think about how hard it is to get 90% of people to agree about anything. And yet, here we are, we're acting in this very responsible collective behavior. The troublemakers and the people who are giving pushback, they get a lot of attention in part because they're outliers. They make a lot of noise. They're, you know, they cause a lot of agony. But this is a relatively small portion of the population. And it reminded me of this interview I did with a primatologist, Franz de Waal. A while back. And I was asking him about, like, why is human nature so violent? And, you know, he studies bonobos, you know, pygmy chimpanzees. And he laughed. He said, look, you're talking to me from New York City. There are 8 million people living in close proximity there. If you put 8 million chimpanzees together in the same place, it would be pandemonium. It would be a disaster. And yet New York lives really quite peacefully. The question is not why are humans violent? The question is, why are humans so peaceful? So that really got me thinking, and it got me excited about today's episode. Yes, yes. Our guest today is none other than Dr. Yuval Noah Harari. He is a historian, philosopher, and author of the New York Times mega bestsellers, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow, 
and most recently, Sapien's A Graphic History. There's a graphic novel version of his ideas. So, Dr. Yuval Noah Harari, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Yuval? Uh, yes, certainly. I'm very happy to be here. When you start Sapiens, you say there's three revolutions. The first one I find especially enchanting. The three big ones are the Cognitive Revolution, about 70,000 years ago. Then you have the Agricultural Revolution, 10,000 years ago, and the Scientific Revolution, which is really just beginning. I mean, began 500 years ago, but that's nothing uh, in terms of, of human history. So the Cognitive Revolution is all about storytelling, to make a long story short. It's really all about storytelling. We control this planet, and not the chimpanzees, not the elephants, not even the Neanderthals, because we can cooperate in much larger numbers than any other animal. And we can do that, first and foremost, because of our ability to invent and believe fictional stories. If you look at any large-scale human cooperation, you always find at the basis some story which, as long as everybody believes, everybody cooperates and follows the same rules, the same laws. It's most obvious in the case of religion. That's easy. But the interesting thing is economic systems are based on fictional stories just like religions. I get what you mean, I believe, by stories. But the idea that what corporations do or what motivates them is fiction, is somehow provably not true. No, it's not what motivates them. It's what they are. Corporations are not a biological or physical entity. The only place corporations exist is in our shared imagination is in the stories we tell and believe. We have this powerful cast of storytellers. You know, tens of thousands of years ago, you had the shamans telling stories about spirits. Then you had priests telling stories about gods. We in the modern world, we have lawyers, corporate lawyers, telling stories about corporations. But it's really the same thing. If everybody stops believing in it, it disappears. And similarly, in the case, even more clearly, in the case of money, maybe the greatest story ever told, if everybody or even, say, 80% of people stop believing in the dollar, it disappears. It has no value whatsoever. I mean, most dollars are not even pieces of paper. They are just electronic data. When you hear today that the Federal Reserve Bank has created during this crisis trillions of dollars, they don't even bother to print them anymore. It's, they just enter some computer file and add a zero somewhere, and poof, you have a trillion dollars appearing out of nowhere. Tell us about the cognitive revolution. What, what happened? when This is when people could create stories and believe in them, right? This is when something happened, we don't understand what, which enabled our species of humans, Homo sapiens. At that time, there were at least five other human species. We are used to being the only humans around, but 70,000 years ago, there were at least six different human species. The most famous, apart from us, are, of course, the Neanderthals. Until then, sapiens, Homo sapiens, does not seem to be superior to Neanderthals or to the other human species. Sapiens, our species, they live or we live in Africa. And then we spread from there and uh, push to extinction all the other human species and many of the other big animals of the world and take over the planet. And what enables us to do it is a sudden ability 
to cooperate far more effectively in large numbers. Neanderthals, which were as powerful as us physically and had bigger brains than Homo sapiens, but they could cooperate only in small bands. 20, 40, maybe 80 Neanderthals could, could cooperate on something. How, how do you know that? How do we know that? Uh, archaeology. I mean, we find with sapiens, we find, for example, people creating stone tools. And when archaeologists analyze the chemical signature, I mean, every stone has a chemical signature. Every and, rock tells a story, as yes. they say. And in the case of sapiens, some stones or seashells, they come from hundreds of kilometers away, which implies some kind of trade network. Among other human species, almost all the material is strictly local, which implies they did not trade. Similarly, you look at graves. So it's questionable whether Neanderthals even had graves, I mean, intentionally burying. There are conflicting theories about it. It's not clear. One of the reasons it's not clear that even if you find a Neanderthal in some kind of strange position somewhere, there are almost no grave goods. Even if they bury them, they don't bury them with all kinds of uh, uh, jewels and, and, and tools and so forth. Commemorative objects, yeah. Yes, with sapiens, from tens of thousands of years ago, you find spectacular graves sometimes. I mean, some individuals, they just throw them in a hole and that's it. But some individuals, they are buried with thousands upon thousands of objects, some of them tools, but some of them works of art. And it's very clear that this is not something that 50 people can do. There's just too much stuff there. So it's obviously hundreds of people coming together to bury this individual. We don't know why, whether it was a political chief whether it was some religious figure or whatever, whether it was some big human sacrifice, we don't know. But there is very strong evidence that this was a collaborative effort of at least several hundred individuals. And you don't find anything like that with Neanderthals. So based on this evidence, where and how did this cognitive revolution occur? You know, is this just sort of something that happens spontaneously? Uh, the, to the best of our knowledge, Sometime around 70,000, 80,000, 90,000 years ago, uh, in East Africa, sapiens acquired this ability uh, to cooperate in larger numbers, to trade, to form larger political units. It's not that humans learned how to make better tools. Neanderthals were excellent tool makers. It's not that the brain became bigger. Again, Neanderthals had bigger brains than us. It's the ability to link together a lot of people into a, a network, a bigger network. And looking at subsequent history, this is probably because of a superior ability to tell stories and convince a lot of people to believe in them. What exactly happened around 70,000 years ago? We know... We well, know, here's I mean, the thing. Yeah? What were they thinking? In other words... Was it one afternoon that some some sapien man or woman went, "Hey, I've I've got a new way of thinking that's completely different from these other uh, species or closer yeah, related this, this is Bill and I were talking about this earlier. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm I'm something of an archaic knuckle dragging reductionist myself, and so when I hear this, I think, "Well, look at you, Corey. I, I know, look at yeah, with my beetling brow." I'm thinking, you know, was there 
a genetic mutation? Was there a thing that happened that was able to change the quality of mind and change the, the quality of communication? Uh, probably, but we don't know. I mean, you know, in science, the, the best thing is that if you don't know something, you just say you don't know. I mean, we know what a, a Homo sapiens was capable of doing afterwards. Boots on the ground. I mean, sapiens spreading from East Africa very rapidly to colonize Europe, the Middle East, Asia, and then reach Australia and America, which no previous human species managed to, managed to reach. We have a lot of evidence of new technologies, new art, trade systems, and so forth. It all points in the same direction. But what actually triggered this revolution? What is a genetic mutation? Which genetic mutation? We don't know that. All right. So was there a gentle change over a few generations, maybe a few hundred generations from non-cognitive to cognitive, from non-communicative to communicative, from non-storytelling to storytelling? Or was it sudden? And is there any evidence of that? Well, in terms of today, it was definitely gradual. It didn't happen in 10 years or 100 years. Uh, we are talking about something between a couple of thousand years to a couple of uh, tens of thousand years. Maybe this is, this is 20, ba based, based on the archaeological data, you mean? Yeah. It's, what we have is the archaeology and a bit of genetics, of course, but it's mostly the archaeology. And there is such a big revolution at present in archaeology. It's not just that people find more and more stuff. It's the methods are changing dramatically. We now have such powerful tools of research which 20 years ago would have sounded like science fiction. So what's an example of that? Maybe the biggest revolution came from the ability to extract and map ancient DNA. What especially caught the public imagination was the discovery 10 years ago that Neanderthals and Homo sapiens not only had sex, but actually had children together and that almost everybody today on the planet has at least a bit of Neanderthal genes in their DNA. So hold in on, I, case, I, need to, I need to jump in here for one second, because if what you're saying is true, you have Neanderthals that, that did not really have fully modern cognition and yes. Homo sapiens who did. So you sort of have cognitively modern humans and cognitively not mm. modern humans. In yeah, I mean, we don't know what the Neanderthal mind was like. They certainly had emotions. They certainly had sensations. They had all kinds of thought processes different from, from sapiens. You know, even today, there are sometimes cognitive differences between, <laughs> uh, between uh, partners. I've noticed that. So, yeah, <laughs> there is a, a lot of research around this question of what was sex like in the Stone Age. And, and you would be surprised what you can today tell about sexual relations 50,000 years ago. Oh, uh, there is like, a lot of, give us an example. Ooh, ooh. There is a lot of research, for example, about uh, the gender relations. Was it mainly sapiens males with Neanderthals females? Was it the opposite or was it more or less equal? Now, this has a lot of implications. Uh, you, can, you can know that because of the kind of DNA traces, Neanderthal DNA, that you find today in modern humans. Some DNA comes mainly from uh, women, some mainly from men. So you can tell this. And this is a, has a lot of implications because usually, for example, if you have a situation when it's mostly males from one group and females from another group, it often is a situation of conquest and domination. 
Stick around for more science rules after this. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Science Rules is back. So that's the cognitive revolution. It's all agreed. We don't, there's some details we don't have, but everybody agrees that something happened that made sapiens communicate better, tell better stories, create fictions that everybody shared, and then we get on to the next revolution. What's the next revolution? The next really big one is the agricultural revolution. About 10,000 years ago, 12,000 years ago, depending on which part of the world you're looking at. And this is about all about control. Uh, humans learning to control other plants and animals, and then also learning to control one another. It goes together. Once you try to control others, suddenly you find yourself under the control of some big chief. So the agricultural revolution is the moment, you know, for for. Millions of years, humans were hunting animals and, and, and uh, uh, gathering plants and whatever, but they never tried to tell them what to do. You know, you go and hunt a wild gazelle. You don't tell the gazelle where to go and when to breed and who to have sex with. Agriculture is about trying to control somebody else's life. So if you're a herder, what you do most of the day is tell sheep what to do. Go there, go here, breed with this one, don't breed with that one. If you're a farmer, you, you graze potatoes or wheat or rice, so you tell the plants what to do. You grow here, you weeds, you go away. Um, and then, of course, somebody starts to control the humans. You say, of course, like it was a natural thing to happen. Yes, when you're talking about the control of humans, is this a qualitative change or a quantitative change? Because naively, I think, oh, well, you know, before there was agriculture, before there were all these sort of, you know, these organized systems, there were still tribes. There were still, you know, there were people who were in charge and people who were uh, subordinate. It, it seems to me like the agricultural revolution expanded the scale on which that was possible. But was that really a qualitative change? Yeah, it was qualitative because before agriculture, almost all human societies were uh, egalitarian and democratic. You could not, there were no dictatorships in the Stone Age, unless under very, very unique conditions. Usually, there was no chief? You're saying tribes didn't have a head guy? Th there, is a, there are leaders. There are leaders, certainly. Somebody is, a, is a, a, a better healer, so everybody goes to, to her or to him when they are sick. 
somebody is a better hunter, somebody is a good storyteller, somebody is connected to the spirits. So yeah, people have leadership roles and they have charisma and all that. But you cannot force people to do something against their will. There is no police, there is no army, there are no prisons, and ultimately people vote with their feet. They live in a small mobile bands. If some bully comes along and starts telling everybody what to do, so I mean, one thing to do is just kill the bully, of course. Come in the night and, and kill him. This is what chimpanzees do when they have a very aggressive and hated leader alpha male. But the other thing, the simpler thing is just go, just walk. I mean, vote with your feet. Uh, you don't have fields, you don't have villages, you don't have granaries, you don't have... Everything you need in order to survive is your own skills and your social relations. All right. So hang on. So one of the my conceptions of what I've learned and heard about and so on over the years is once people figured agriculture out so they could stay in one place and have uh, granaries and uh, and villages and so on, is then they had time to sit and think. They actually had less time. I mean, before agriculture, people had more free time. It, of course, it depends which people you're talking about. Okay, but also before agriculture, didn't people starve to death? Wasn't that an undesirable outcome? No, far less so. I mean, farmers starve to death far more often than hunter-gatherers. Hunter-gatherers, um, what protects them? against famine is that they hunt and gather a very large number of different species of plants and animals. So if there is drought and some plant is now uh, not available, they hunt or, or gather something else. This is an old thing we say about ecosystems. The more diversity in an ecosystem, exactly. the more robust it is, the, the easier it can get through difficult times and weather, floods, what have you. The problem is that especially the first farmers were monocultures. Uh, in the Middle East, they basically eat wheat and barley. That's the main thing. In South America, it's potatoes. In East Asia, it's, it's rice. And in the North, it's millet. So you have this larger and larger population relying on just a single crop or maybe two crops. And that's extremely fragile. You have a drought, you have a flood, you have some disease, and the entire thing collapses. So with that drawback, with that's, let's say that's a drawback, how come the whole flipping world now depends on agriculture? In other words, if the hunting and gathering was a more robust right. why did agriculture way win? to live, why did it, agriculture it take over? It won by just weight of numbers. Um, farmers are just far more numerous than hunter-gatherers. They have a more miserable life. They die far more often, not just from famine, but also from epidemics. Hunter-gatherers had no epidemics, zero epidemics. Epidemics started with agriculture because most epidemics come from domesticated animals like chickens and pigs. And even if it comes from a wild animal, like the coronavirus coming from a bat, in a mobile hunter-gatherer band of 20 people, if somebody is infected with coronavirus, then okay, so maybe 10 people will get it and two will die and that's it. But once you have towns and cities, thousands of people crammed together not moving with their animals, with their sweets, the with their garbage right there, yeah. This right. is the paradise for germs. So what's the advantage for the individual? First, it's weight of numbers. You have a lot more miserable people, but a lot more people. And the, the way that agriculture, that farmers think 
is to protect themselves through having even more babies. I mean, hunter-gatherers did not have very big families. They moved around all the time. It was difficult to manage, you know, three or four babies at the same time. So women tried to space out uh, a birth at least three, four years apart. One of the main ways to do it is to breastfeed babies or children until they are three or four years old. As long as the mother breastfeeds, the chances of getting pregnant again are quite small. And it also had the added advantage of strengthening the immune system of the babies. They didn't know that, of course, but they did know that it's a good idea to space out birth. So here's the question. There's the, the next revolution after agriculture is the scientific revolution, right? Yes, that, that's the But getting one. back to this thing where I was claiming uh, that... Uh, agriculture allowed people to sit and think. You're saying they had less time to sit and think. Most people, yes. I mean, Most if you're people. a... But if somehow... You, if you're a priest, I mean, when I think of science, When I think of science, I think of time to sit and think. So did farming lead to science or did science emerge some other organic way? No, you have thousands of years in between. I mean, you certainly need time away from uh, taking care of food in order to have serious science, but this is really the business of a very, very small and privileged group of people. It's not that the masses of the, of the population in either ancient Greece or in modern Italy and uh, Britain and the United States have time to do science. The modern scientific revolution is the work of a very small and very privileged elite. So here, define, define the scientific revolution. I would say that the scientific revolution, at the basis of the, of the modern scientific revolution, is the discovery of ignorance. Now, that's the biggest discovery of science. Until the scientific revolution, for thousands of years, you have different cultures and civilizations convinced that they have the answers to all the important questions. Maybe there is something they don't know, but it's not important. All the important things are in our scriptures are in our traditions. There is nothing important that is left to be discovered. But I have to ask a question here because, you know, I'm thinking about like the history of science going back into what I would call the, the proto-scientific age, knowing when rains were coming, knowing when it was going to flood, knowing which plants were good to eat and which plants were not good to eat, being aware of, you know, where the sun is in the sky and, and you know, and long-term cycles. All of those things were part of a, of a pretty widespread knowledge base that are sort of separate from mythologies uh, the way you're framing it. Would you say that that stuff is that's not knowledge? That's not science? No, it it's definitely is. But it's it has been accumulated over a very, very long time, often in an unsystematic way, as a kind of um, sideshow practice. I mean, you don't have the systematic search for new information and for amalgamating all the new observations and experiments in order to create new disciplines and new models and theories. If you look, for instance, even at the Middle Ages, just in Europe in the Middle Ages, just on the verge of the scientific revolution, you know, forget about uh, astrophysics and biology and things like that. Just think about weapons. What would kings and princes want more than better weapons? And yet, no army, no state, no country in medieval Europe 
had a research and development department that constantly works on making better crossbows, better ships, uh, better swords, nothing. I mean, of course, people sometimes discover things and make improvements incrementally. I mean, there is some kind of scientific progress before the modern age, but it's incremental, it's often haphazard, it's not systematic. I think about the Polynesians. Polynesians were able to navigate all over the Pacific Ocean. And they had agriculture. And they had wars. I'm open-minded but skeptical that they weren't thinking scientifically. To discover new things is, of course, a human universal. People everywhere, all the time, in all periods of history, discovered new things, invented new things. But the basic assumption of almost all the cultures we know was that they already have the answers to the most important questions. Yes, maybe we can discover a new island. Maybe we can find a better way to harness a horse. Yeah, these little things, sure. But the fundamental understanding of what is the universe? What's happening here? What is the human body? Where did humans come from? No, we know that. There is no need to research that. And you don't see a systematic effort to observe and experiment and make fundamental changes. You know, you talked about fictions early on. Are you then suggesting quite reasonably, and it wouldn't be the first time, that science or what we think of as mainstream science is another fiction? Oh, absolutely not. No, no, no. There's a huge, huge difference. Science, I mean, there are fictions in science, of course, but let me go back maybe a few steps and define what is a fiction or what is a fictional story. There are really three kinds of things in the, in the universe that we know about, three kinds of realities. There are objective things like viruses. Objective things are things that don't depend on human belief. Even if nobody knows there are viruses, they are still there. Even if nobody believes that antibiotics can kill uh, bacteria, it still does it. It doesn't depend on your belief. That's objective. Well, the second, oh, would but that it were. <laughs> uh, wouldn't yes. the world, the world here in the United States, the world would be quite different if we had people who accepted what seemed to be objective truths about viruses. Well, but, but I'm just trying to define the terms. Right, right. If, define the terms, and then, I, and then I want to follow up on this point. But, but, but please finish. You have objective realities. Viruses, black holes, whatever. Then you have subjective realities. Subjective realities are things that exist in one mind only and depend on what you feel and you believe. If you feel pain... Nobody else in the world feels this pain. You go to the doctor, the doctor needs to ask you, is it painful? Because he doesn't know, she doesn't know. And similarly, if you, believe, if you have lots of kids have an imaginary friend, so they're the only ones who can see and talk with this imaginary friend. As long as they believe it, it's still there, once one kid stops believing, it's gone. That's subjective things. Or what you dream at night. Your dream is a subjective reality. Now, the, many people think these are the only two things in the world. There are objective things, subjective things, and that's it. And if something is not subjective, it means it must be objective. So if I'm not the only one believing in God or believing in, in money, it must be objective. 
But there is a third kind of reality, which is for his for history, it's maybe the most important, which is intersubjective. These are things that exist in the minds of many people together. It's like a shared dream, a collective dream. It's not objective. It's not out there like a black hole. It depends. If, if nobody believes in it, it doesn't exist. But if a lot of people believe in it, it can be the most powerful thing in the world. This Money, is called intersubjective. This is intersubjective. Between, Between subjective. Sub, yes. This, and this so is where you're getting to economics and, and money and corporations and things like that. Money, corporations, gods, nations, they exist. They are extremely powerful as long as a lot of people believe in them. Where do they exist? Where does money exist? Where does the United States exist? It's not a physical entity, the United States. It exists in the network of subjectivities. It, it, it's a shared dream. One way to, to, to realize it is just think about other animals. Other animals, like chimpanzees, they can see our houses. They can see our cars. They can see our guns. But no chimpanzee is aware that the United States exists because it exists only in the imagination of humans. Okay, so I'm, I'm very interested in the the functional effect of the storytelling. And you're, you talk a lot about storytelling as a way of connecting people together, of sort of creating these, these enormous bonds. But the stories that bond us together don't have to be fictions. Uh, you know, I come from a tradition of, of science storytelling. Uh, you mentioned black holes. You know, there are people who are fascinated by the study of black holes. You know, there are things like this that are bonding mechanisms. They're shared stories. They're not fictions, but they're definitely bonding mechanisms. They are very weak glues. Nobody ever sacrificed his life, as far as I know, for a black hole. <laughs> a lot of people sacrificed their lives for God, for the nation. We can explore this in a people, minute. But, but people but have I, sacrificed their lives for scientific discoveries. Very, very, very few. So let's say you want to run for president and your platform is E equals MC square. Who would vote for you? Scientific theories are not good uh, as political or social glue. All the most successful theories, uh, stories, that make people fight wars and make revolutions and vote in elections, they are fictional stories. It's very, very difficult to get a million people together struggling for a cause which is an objective scientific truth. Okay, so taking this concrete example, what would you call a narrative that says, we, this group of people, we think that we need a strong healthcare system and we think that we need to band together on a set of policies that will help push back this pandemic. Is that a scientific narrative? Is that a political narrative? Is that a fictional narrative? As long as it stays scientific, it ignores some very difficult questions. For example, okay, we need a good healthcare system. Who would benefit from it? Would the people south of the Rio Grande benefit from it? Is there some scientific invisible shield along the Rio Grande that the, the epidemic stops there? If you want to justify why only certain people will enjoy this healthcare system and not others, this is the moment when you cross over from a scientific theory about how to fight epidemics 
into some kind of national mythology, which is not necessarily bad. I mean, we need this. Otherwise, oh, that was nations. the key question. Are, are these fictions bad? I mean, no, it just has a dark quality. Absolutely like not. They can sometimes be bad, but not necessarily. Even if you take something much simpler, you, let's, let's say play football. You cannot play football together unless you first agree on rules which are completely the invention of humans. They don't come from physics or biology or chemistry. Nations, I don't think they are bad. They are one of the best inventions of humanity as long as you understand them correctly. Nationalism is not about hating foreigners. It's about loving your compatriots. It goes back again to what Franz de Waal, I heard you quoting him at the beginning, that chimpanzees and Neanderthals, they basically care only about people they know people, persons, chimps, they, they, they know personally. They don't care about strangers. Now, the amazing thing, not just about New York, but about, say, the United States, is that you have 300 million people. You know just 100 or 200 out of them. And still, at least some people, maybe not the president, but at least some people are willing to pay taxes so that complete strangers on the other side of the country will have education, will have health care. This is amazing. And this is nationalism in action. You care about these uh, other Americans. Strangers. Yeah, because strangers. you share the story. I'm not against stories. Your business is telling the story. It's fantastic. I hope you're not against stories. Uh, yeah. I mean, again, the thing to remember is stories can be bad or, or good. They are tools. They are tools like spear points or cars created by humans to serve human needs. As long as the story fulfills its function, it's very good. The problem begins when people allow the story basically to hijack them, to enslave them. Instead of using the story to help people, you sometimes sacrifice people for the sake of the story. It can happen with football, when football hooligans beat each other up, and it can happen with, you know, entire wars between nations because of some insult to the honor of this fictional entity called the nation. Science Rules will be right back. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. You're listening to Science Rules. So we go from cognitive to cultural to scientific revolutions. But now the next step, which I find just cool and fascinating, and to kick us off, uh, Yuval, we have a voicemail, which I think will help everybody get started on your next big idea. Here we go. Can we roll that digital recording? Hello, Mr. Nye. I am calling because I see one of the topics this time is Yuval Noah Harari. And I just recently completed reading his uh, second book, Homo Deus. And in the book, he makes the statement that organisms are essentially data processing systems. 
or in effect organic algorithms. And he makes the assertion that since humans are technically algorithms, that there's no reason why in the future organic and inorganic algorithms can't be merged together to form, I guess, sort of a, a race of superhumans with abilities that would be far beyond anything that anyone alive today is capable of. And so I guess I was wondering um, what would be your take on the ability for organic and inorganic algorithms to be combined into, I guess, sort of a new life form? Thank you very much for considering the question. Have a wonderful day, sir. Well, there is no clear reason to think that consciousness is limited to organic compounds. Why would it be? I mean, maybe in the end it turns out that there is something we don't understand, and yes, consciousness is limited to organic stuff. But at the, uh, where we are today, I think there is good reason to, to think that there could be non-organic consciousness and certainly non-organic intelligence. Now that's for sure because we already have non-organic intelligence. Uh, we have computers that at least in some fields are clearly more intelligent than humans. Now, there is a lot of confusion in science fiction and sometimes even in science between intelligence and consciousness. So maybe I say a few words about the difference. Yes, please. Intelligence is the ability to solve problems. Consciousness is the ability to feel things like pain and pleasure and love and hate. Now, in humans, consciousness and intelligence go together. We solve problems by having feelings. Most problems, this is how we solve them. And that's true of all other mammals as well. This is how chimpanzees and dogs solve problems, with, with feelings, with, with consciousness. Computers are completely different. Computers already have a high intelligence in some fields, ability to solve problems, with zero consciousness. So it could be that evol the evolution of intelligence, in the case of mammals, went through the way of consciousness, and that's us. But there are alternative ways to develop intelligence, even super intelligence. So we might get super intelligent AI, which still has zero consciousness. You know, for four billion years, we had organic evolution, which obeyed not just the laws of natural selection, but another set of laws, the laws of organic biochemistry. We may now be reaching the point when at least the second set of rules is no longer relevant, that we will start seeing non-organic evolution. So, so, so where do you see us going? I mean, given all those uncertainties, you wrote, this, you wrote a whole book on this. So can yeah. you just sort of lay out your vision? Of where are we headed next? There are many options. I mean, the, the, the book is not kind of a prophecy. I don't know. It's a map of different possibilities. Many of them are mutually exclusive. You can't have all of them. So what I think is very likely is that within, say, a century or two, Earth will be dominated by entities that are far more different from us than we are different from Neanderthals or from chimpanzees. We are still amazingly like Neanderthals and also quite like chimpanzees. But in 200 years, whatever or whoever dominates the planet, it will be far, far more different. In just 200 years? I think that, that that's a, a kind of generous estimate. You look at the speed 
of technological development, the, the key, the, the turning point, the watershed, is when you start hacking human beings. To hack human beings means that an external system understands me better than I understand myself. Not just my medical condition. This was already, we passed this long ago. But even my emotions, my feelings, my decisions. When an external system understands that better than me, we are very close to that point, And that's the tipping point beyond which we can't really imagine what will happen in the world. It's beyond our imagination, but by, by definition, it's beyond our, our imagination. Now, from your point of view, is this something, is this a good future, a bad future, or just more a morally neutral projection of where we're headed? It could be good, it could be de- bad, depends on what we or it uh, does with, with the opportunities. There are wonderful opportunities and there are terrible opportunities. Uh, And nothing is set in stone. It still depends on the decisions we take in the coming years. Humans still have the agency. They still have the power. But the power is slipping from within our hands. Already today, there is a shift of power from humans to algorithms. More and more decisions, both individual and collective, are taken by algorithms. If you go to the bank and ask for a loan, increasingly, it's not a human being that makes the decision. It's an algorithm that collects enormous amounts of data on you. And when the bank tells you, no, we don't give you a loan, and you ask why not, the bank answers, we don't know. The algorithm said no, and we just believe our algorithm. The thing about algorithms, they make decisions in a different way than humans. So even if you live in Europe and you have the the right for an explanation, it won't help you because the explanation is a million pages of data that as a human, you can't process. A human being usually makes decision on the basis of two or three data points. That's it. You come to the bank, you ask for a loan, two or three data points, that's it. That's what the human brain can do. An algorithm weighs thousands of data points, each giving a very, very small influence on the final outcome. So hang on, another thing that I find just so cool that you talk about is the intercontinental serial killer. That comes from actually from the new book, from the graphic novel. So the whole thing about the graphic novel is to experiment with new ways of telling history and of telling science. So we play with a lot of genres. So one part of the graphic novel is like a superhero action movie. One part is a reality TV show. And one part is this detective story. And we created this fictional character, Detective Lopez, and she goes to investigate the greatest crime of the last million years, the sudden disappearance of about 50% of the large animals, land animals of the world, about 10, 20, 30,000 years ago. And she goes around the planet, collecting evidence, interviewing witnesses, uh, on the track of these intercontinental serial killers. And of course, she discovers that uh, these serial killers are homo sapiens. We knew for a long time that something big happened to a lot of the big animals. Between, say, 50,000 years ago, when you start seeing the disappearance of big animals in Australia, and about 10,000 years ago, when more than 50% of the big animals of America disappear. And there was a lot of arguments, there are still a lot of arguments about it, but I think there is quite conclusive evidence that as Homo sapiens spread from East Africa, they systematically drove to extinction most of the big 
all the other human species and most of the big animals of the world. Even before agriculture, that's before agriculture. Yeah, but they had tools and they had stories and they could hunt in tribes, right? Yeah, the, the, the big advantage was, again, large-scale cooperation. Uh, a mammoth has a good defensive strategy when it is attacked by two, three, five individuals. But it cannot protect itself against a coordinated trap or ambush of 50 or 100 individuals. This is why the big animals disappeared. Rabbits, they have a different strategy. They hide. But the big animals rely on their size and strength. Now, this is good enough against lions, against crocodiles, against Neanderthals. It was a not a good enough strategy against cooperative Homo sapiens, which is why all over the world you see the rapid disappearance of most of the big animals. So is that still what's going on today with the mass extinction that we're kind of in the middle yeah. of and with climate change? Yeah, yeah. When people talk about the sixth extinction, uh, it didn't begin this century or even in this millennium. It began about 50,000 years ago with the spread of the new kind of Homo sapiens. It's now maybe shifting the weight of the extinction to the oceans. For thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, humans were a deadly threat mainly on land. In the last few centuries, we became a deadly threat also in the oceans. So now you see the gradual disappearance of the big animals of the oceans, the whales, the dolphins, the sharks, and, and so forth. So here's a question. Is it inevitable? This is to say, uh, when these people, our ancestors marched across uh, Eurasia, then North America, killing all the big animals and eating them or whatever they were doing with them, was that that was not part of a master plan. That was just something that was happening for people trying to make a living. Is climate change and the destruction of ecosystems, is that inevitable? Or can we make a different decision, set of decisions? Right. Can we, can we come up with a different collective narrative that we want to follow? Yes, certainly. Um, the big difference between what happened now and what happened then is back then people didn't realize what they were doing. They were hunting two, three mammoths every year. Nobody lived for a thousand years. So nobody realized that over time we were causing, or our ancestors were causing, the extinction of the mammoth. But now it happens so fast and we have so much information that it should be obvious that we are doing it. And it also means that we can stop doing it. And this is really a question of politics. Uh, we need the political... Uh, storytelling. Politics is about storytelling. You win elections by telling a good story. And the question is, if somebody can come up with a good enough story that will convince people to stop undermining or destroying the ecosystem. If you were in charge, if you were, as we say, king of the forest. Let's put it this way. The global fiction that accords power to certain people has given that power to you. Now, what do you do with it? I'm, yes. First yes. of all, I, I would share it with a lot of other people because I wouldn't trust myself to really know what to do with it. Uh, and just, how would you do that with a story and some voting and ballots being counted and stuff like that? How would you do that? Uh, I would ask experts on that. I'm not a good politician. Even if I'm king of the forest, I would share some of that power because I'm, I'm not a good politician. 
and I don't really know how to deal with power effectively. And I think that, you know, the, the, what I would like to see in the world, if that's what you're getting at, is two things which are related. It's much better global cooperation because all our major problems can only be solved on a global basis, whether it's climate change, whether it's the rise of artificial intelligence, whether it's uh, inequality, it can only be solved through global cooperation. You cannot do it on the level of one nation. Um, so that, that's one big thing. And the other big thing, I would try to formulate a vision for the future because what strikes me most about the current phase we are now in history is that humanity has more power than ever before. Politicians, potentially, have more power than ever before, and nobody offers any serious vision for what to do with it. You know, when you look at the 20th century, the 20th century politics was a battle between big visions for the future. Basically, you had communism, you had fascism, you had liberalism. Each had a giant plan for the future of humanity. And now nobody has any plan. You look to the right, you look to the left. So... Is, is a vision of the future a story? And then do you have a story? Do you have a vision as king of the forest? Oh, uh, I, I have parts of the vision. I mean, first of all, it's to acknowledge the enormous power that we are gaining. Secondly, to realize that this power is slipping from our hands. It's shifting to the algorithms. So we don't have a lot of time. If we don't act quickly, it will be too late. I don't believe in a robot rebellion or anything like that. It's much more simple. Um, will just more and more decisions, like about who to give a loan to, will be taken by unconscious, non-conscious algorithms. And in addition, the world will be just too complicated for Homo sapiens to understand. Even today, if you look at the financial system, how many people in the world can really understand the financial system? I think it's less than a lot less than 1%. Now, I think in 20 years, the number would be exactly zero. In 20 years, nobody will be able to understand the financial system. Not, no human being. Algorithms will be able, not humans. And what does it mean to politics when no human being can understand the financial system? So even if you have a human president still, uh, the, that president suddenly gets a call from the chief algorithm telling the president... Mrs. President or Mr. President, there is a financial crisis, but I can't explain to you what the crisis is because you're a human, you can't understand. There are three options what to do, but just trust me, I, I, I can't explain why you're just a human. It's too much data. You won't understand. And, you know, that's what politics is going to be like in 20 or 30 years if we don't do something now. Corey. Wait, wait, Bill. Corey. I hear something that sounds thunderous. In fact, yes, it's thunder. And if there's thunder, that means that somewhere out there is lightning. And if there's lightning out there, it means it is time for the lightning round. Now, Yuval, lightning round means that we ask you lightning fast questions and you give okay. lightning fast answers. Just uh, you, you, you let your brain there's, loose. There's no right or And whatever wrong. light flashes out of your brain, boom. What is the most misunderstood idea in your books? Uh, that fictions are bad that I'm against all these fictional stories and we should get rid of them. If you could be doing anything other than what you're doing now, what, what would it be? 
Ooh, um, I don't know, be a hunter-gatherer? <laughs> You'd be so happy. <laughs> okay. But I would have to start young. If you don't start at age one, it's uh, you're not going to really... To you really just don't get one. the life skills. It's it's like learning to dabbler. ice skate or play water polo. Yeah, so if you if you could bring back any one of the extinct species, homo, homo species that you spoke about, Ooh. which one would it be? Um, I wouldn't wish it on any of them. I mean... The, the way the world looks now, you just look at how people from different religions and races treat each other. So think how we would treat the poor Neanderthals if they were alive now. If you could live at any time in history, when would it be? Oh, it depends if I go now or as a baby. I mean, even if it's a baby, then hunter-gatherer, like, I don't know, 30,000 years ago. But if it's now, then only the present. I mean, I would die after a week from dysentery in any other period, I think. <laughs> okay, 30 seconds or less. Uh, of the three revolutions, cognitive agriculture and industrial, which one is the most important? Is one more important than the other? Well, they are built on each other, but ultimately the scientific will be the most important because the other ones just change something about humans. The scientific one is going to change the very laws of evolution. This is great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Our guest today has been uh, Yuval Noah Harari, and he is a historian, philosopher, and author of Sapiens. And the new book is Sapiens, A Graphic History. Remember, everybody, when it comes to investigating the past and future timeline of humanity, science, science rules. rules. And if you like science rules, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts on a Stitcher. It helps us out, helps us find out what you want to hear about helps other people learn about the show so thank you be sure to look at my socials for more information on our upcoming guests and i'm at bill nye on all those things and meanwhile if you'd like to leave us a voicemail give us a call at 201-472-0785 or submit a question at askbillnye.com now, Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and the very same Corey S. Powell. Yeah. Casey Halford mixed this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. And at Stitcher, everyone, Science, Science Rules. Rules. Stitcher. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.